you know, I want to look here in Revelation 22, and we're going to focus today in verses 14 to 21. And it's the end of the letter, Revelation, and yet it's addressing the church today. So as you've went through this letter with us and, and you've seen, you know, there's a chronology that's important when you read, and it's based off the, the content so the content, say, of chapter 22, we want to catch the context. Context speaks of, speaks of what's around it, what's before and after. You know, so we want to see that, and as we absorb this content, we, we want to recognize there's an order. So sometimes the Apostle John, as Jesus spoke to him there on the island of Patmos in uh, 2000, some, some 2,000 years ago, as he spoke to him there, he spoke about things that were to come for John, and they literally went right past John, 2,000 years to us, and right on past that to what we know the end times, and that's where we've seen these events that will happen and lead, they're going to take place. So when we're reading this, we always want to be catching, okay, which portion is this addressing? Is this addressing something that's future? Or is this addressing something that's present to be applied by you and I even now? And I think it, when we keep that in mind, it does make it easier to track through this particular letter. Now today in our reading, we're going to start in verse 12, although we covered verses 12 and 13 last week. We're going to start there and then we'll come back and we'll dig into verses 14 to 21. Let's read through Revelation 22, beginning in verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. As we venture into it and work our way through, we thank you, Jesus, that you lead us on this journey, the journey of life. You lead us through joyful and wonderful and powerful times. You are our strength and our hope through difficult and troublesome trials. You never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, we know that if we're left to our own logic and our own feelings, our own opinion or emotion, we really won't know your word. For these are spiritual words, and the natural man cannot discern them. So we ask, Holy Spirit, teach us your word today as you always do. 
Teach us, Lord, what we need to know individually, what we need to apply as a, a church, a gathering, God. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Walk us through your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so beginning, as I mentioned, in verse 14. Now, as we pick up and as we work through, we once again got to remember who's speaking and who he's speaking to. So we know if your Bible, if, uh, the publisher that you know, kind of compiled it for you, has, has you know, built from the past and has taken the original translation. Anyway, he, they could have very well listed Jesus' words in red, right? The red letter section. So when it's a red letter section, it's not too complicated to figure out who's talking. So you're like, okay, this is the Lord. He's verses 12 and 13. He's telling us some things. And then in verse 14, it's either the apostle John sharing what God put on his heart to bring forward the word of God written on the heart of the apostle John through his hand, if you would, penned through him is the truth God wanted. But notice it's now speaking, you know, blessed are those, and it gets into a distinction. So I believe what we have here, as you can see, the timing for this whole thing as we've read through chapter 20, 21, 22, is the church has been taken up into heaven. And when the church was taken up into heaven through an event that's referred to as the rapture, then this other time started on the earth, the time of tribulation, great tribulation. That tribulation was really God's judgment poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That's why they didn't go up, is because they rejected him, those who would not receive him unto salvation. So those who are here go through a pretty tough time, terrible time, really, of judgment. And at the end of that, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And that thousand-year reign, the millennium, the millennial reign of a thousand years, the end of that millennial reign is this, this great white throne judgment. Satan is then bound and put into Hades, Abyss, the Abuso. And we are reading here from 21 on this new Jerusalem, this new earth, this new heaven, what it's going to be like. So you could easily be tracking along and thinking, okay, that's now we're here. But guess what? Where the letter transitioned is it went back to chapter 1, so to speak. In 22. So you see what's happening? He's talking to the church, the audience, and he's presenting truth. The reason I belabor this or make this, emphasize this, is because you don't want to see and perceive, based on this content, what we're seeing here, that, oh, so heaven will have those who didn't make the cut hanging outside the gates looking for a chance to bust in. It's just not what's going to happen. That's already been dealt with. Okay, so we got to see, okay, well, what's he talking about? He's, he's speaking as a word of exhortation, uh, uh, almost like a warning and telling you, the church, as we're going to see just towards the end of this portion, who he's talking to. There's, a distinct, there's distinct differences based on relationship for humanity. Okay, you see it in the Old Testament. It's, it's revealed in the New Testament. In the Garden of Eden, God, and I'll paraphrase it, so to speak, between the his words, and then the prophets. He basically said to Adam and Eve, I give you my love, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, that instruction that he gave 
It involved his authority. It involved his love. It involved his commitment to people. If we can always keep this in the front of our mind, no matter how tough of a situation or how terrible of a trial we're going through, we want to realize that God has our best in mind always. He has our best in mind, humanity, when he gave us life. Even historically, through genealogy hit and rewind, we see in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. When he gave us instruction, when he reveals his love, it's because he has our best in mind. You know, sometimes we inadvertently or maybe we're confused because of our circumstances. We think maybe God's doing this to punish us. Or you know what I mean? Sometimes those thoughts can go through your head. Like, man, why is this happening to me? But don't let that situational reality change the truth of God's character. Because it can't really anyway. It can just create confusion in your mind. The truth of God's character, he's always looking out for your best, our best. But here's where the distinctions come into play. Because as God revealed his best for humanity, man chose to rebel against God. And so man chose disobedience rather than obedience. We, we see that through the instruction in the Garden of Eden. We see how that all unfolded. That choice produced a distinct difference in the relationship between man and God. Because we know what happened. God then dealt with disobedient man by ushering the first family out of the Garden of Eden. That was a result of their disobedience. God then says, you can't stay here. It's actually his grace, as we'll uncover here in a little while, that removed them to protect them, quite honestly, knowing what's best for them. But when God removed humanity from the Garden of Eden, he didn't abandon disobedient man. He didn't say, you know what? You got what you deserved. You, you're, you're reaping the rewards of your actions. Instead, God gave man hope and instruction. And he said, and you can compile this and see this from the Old Testament, as new, the New Testament as well. He basically said, although you disobeyed me and brought death into the world, if you will obey me and follow my best for you, then you will know my love and blessings. But, that's the distinction, If you disobey me and turn from what is best for you, I will discipline you for your disobedience. Anybody who has kids, you know this whole principle. Anybody who has parents, which would be now everybody is involved now, whether it's a traditional mother-father family dynamic or a guardian or whatever, there's an authority in your life as a, as a toddler on through, and they presented certain truths that you were to follow. If you followed them, there were some you know, results, plus or minus. So the distinction we've read about already in Revelation 22 is that there's two groups. There's obedient and disobedient. Now, certainly, we know there are many other groups in, in, in culture and in history. We have God himself identifying the Jews and the non-Jews, would be the Jews and the Gentiles. We know God established men and women, despite contemporary feeling and common buzzwords, that's your only two options, men and women. What you start with is what you stay with. That's how it, that God has designed it. It's how it is. There's slave, there's free. There's rich, there's poor. But the most important is obedient or disobedient. Because that's what we're reading about throughout Scripture. Those who are obedient to his offer of forgiveness 
and new life. You experience, when you're obedient, this born-again life. And born-again brings new life and a new way of living. So with that being the awareness, we realize, hopefully, I would encourage you to hold on to this truth, that you don't change your way of living to have a new life. The new life is why you change your way of living. It's like this. Obedience is an expression of gratitude. Because someone, God himself, loved you and gave himself for you. And when you grasp that truth, you're very thankful for the new life. And you choose to live as an expression of that gratitude. Because thank you, God, for what you've done for me. This new life is a life of thankfulness to God for what he's done. Now let's take a look at verse 14 one more time. Blessed are they who do his commandments. So there's a a happiness. The word really speaks of that. Oh, how happy for those who, because they're born again, they choose to live the new born again life. And and we see, you know, that they, you know, they, they, there's a, there's a difference between that and not walking in obedience. So what are his commandments? What are the things that he would command? You know, we do have the carryover, the Old Testament, the, the top ten, so to speak. But what did Jesus specifically say? Is there, is there anything specific? Well, first of all, he did say, you must be born again. A man by the name of Nicodemus comes at night over to Jesus and wants to talk to him, probably so he didn't have interruption or maybe even other pressures or whatever it may be. So he comes to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he's like, he's thinking in a natural realm. He's trying to figure out this spiritual truth just in an earthly level. And he's like, born again? Mom is not going for that. I mean, he's trying to figure out, how's this going to happen? And Jesus kind of reprimands him and said, you know, you're a teacher. You're, you've been to church. You know these religious principles and you're not grasping this truth of the spirit. And he goes on to teach me, you must be born again. See, there's no other means by which a man may be saved than through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that he is the only way by which you can be saved, I can be saved. Putting our trust, our full confidence in him for salvation. So you must be born again. That's one of his commandments, seriously. In order to enter to heaven, you have to be born again. That's not a doctrinal thing that was developed through Western civilization. It's not a particular pastor's opinion. That's the very written word of God. Also, these commandments, when a rich young ruler had came to him and was very curious, and, and in this, well, there's a couple of different places we see where people had come to him and asked basically this question. You know, what do I got to do? What's, what's my part now? In other words, they were familiar with religious systems and they were familiar with emphasis and what you have to do. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Everything you got, all that's in you, you love God and you love your neighbor. And so that is an expression. See, but what he told them to do, they can't do. You ever thought about that? He gave instruction they couldn't fulfill on their own strength. See, they're instructed to love in a way that's foreign to humanity. It's outside the realm of possibility relying on your own resources. But if you realize that when you're born again, 
the love that you have is the love that carried him to the cross and raised him to heaven. The love that, that really empowered him. See, the Bible tells us that he was compelled by love to the cross. And so that love, we're told, then resides within us. is literally a part of his presence within us. So now we do have the capacity. We do have the ability to love beyond what we would think we could. Because we're relying on him to love. So he says, your commandment is to love one another. He even went as far as to say, you know how your sister, your brother, your relative, your coworker, your college student friend, your you know, teammate on the sports team, you know how they'll know that you're my disciples? You'll have love one for another. That, that expression is so important. It's not just a, a concept. It's not something that looks good on a fridge magnet alone. He didn't say, this is how the world you'll know, that, will know that you're my disciples. You'll have love. See, you could do that. But he said, you'll have love for one another. And it really speaks to the body of Christ, to the siblings we, that we are that we would love one another. Don't, aren't you glad he didn't say you'll be just like one another? Amen. That's actually what we're trying to accomplish most of the time with our disputes. Deep down, we think somebody should agree with our opinion or be more like us. And let's just agree. The last thing the world needs is another one of you. A duplicate, right? Another one of me. That's the last thing needed, an exact replica. No. But to see how God has brought this beautiful, the true word of, true use of the word diversity, he's brought that into the body, the family of Christ. And he says, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. You'll love one another. And if you study the makeup of the early church, and just even if you just kind of followed through with the gospels and seen how the apostles engaged you'll realize they learned how to love because they didn't start knowing how to love. And they learned how to love one another. So it's really it's so important that we realize this is his instruction to us. And also he said, as I have forgiven you, I'd like you to ponder and consider the possibilities and, and theoretically engage the options of maybe considering possibly forgiving someone else. No, it was a little different, wasn't it? A little more specific, actually. A little more non-philosophical. As I have forgiven you, so you must do also. You must forgive others. And we know. Maybe some of you are thinking through a situation you're currently in or historically you've been hurt and even scarred by things you've went through. And he says, as I have forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You can't do that. You cannot forgive just because somebody told you you should. But you can if that person who said you should forgive empowered you to forgive, enabled you to do it, and caused you, so to speak, in their relationship for you to say, you tell me to do this, I can't forgive them. And he said, I know, I know. But I can show you how forgiveness works. Why is God so wound up about forgiveness? Because unforgiveness hurts you the one who holds it. It's the very garden that the seeds of bitterness flourish in. And that's one of the reasons he says, you've got to forgive. You know, as you've forgiven me, so I must forgive. Well, how did he forgive me? 
I had nothing to bring to the deal. We had nothing to negotiate with. Oh God, if you get me out of jail, oh God, if you do this, I'll do this for you. And he's like, you got nothing. There's nothing that he would need. But what we do have is a life that he says, you know what? I will teach you how to forgive. I will teach you. I will show you through my example. You don't, it's not a negotiation. We freely receive the gift of life through the accomplishment, work, and purposes of Jesus Christ. That's how we freely we were forgiven. And so then we're to go and do likewise. Okay, Lord, teach me. Now, that doesn't mean you're to be a doormat and people get to do whatever. And you say, well, I'm just going to be forgiving. But you'll learn love and you'll learn to forgive because these are the things he's saying. These are my commandments. That this is what your life will look like. You believe and then these things are worked out of your life. They're the things that are a product of this new life. Notice what he says in, as we continue there in verse 14. That they may have the right to the tree of life. You remember the tree of life? It was back there in Genesis, remember? Isn't it fascinating that we're referencing Genesis as we're reading Revelation. And we have the totality of scripture between Genesis and Revelation. And here he's saying, you remember the tree of life? What was the deal on the tree of life? They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And entered into a state of misery. Knowing what to do and lacking the power to do it. Knowing right and wrong. But not living, not having the ability to live according to what's right. And the things they'd want to do, they didn't do. And the things they shouldn't do, that's what they were doing. And so what did God do? He evicted them. And he put two heavenly beings, angels, if you would, around the tree of life. So that they would not eat of the tree of life and be perpetually, eternally in a state of misery. Knowing right and wrong and not being able to do what's right. It's God's grace. And now look what happens here as he's revealing here in Revelation. This tree of life. It's like he took it from the Garden of Eden, maybe even at the time of the flood, and just transplanted it, held it for the new heaven and a new earth as a reminder to humanity of his grace. Also, we see that they may enter through the gates into the city. That may seem kind of strange to us, but in that culture, walled cities were for protection. So you could take care of yourself. You could have, you, you'd have the security and comfort. And how did you enter a city, a gated city? Two ways. You either went in through the gates or you went all gangster and climbed a wall at night or something. But you eventually got caught and got pitched back over the wall or ushered out the gate in pieces or however it would be depending on the rules. See what he's conveying? You, you, you have the tree of life and the entrance into the eternal city, the, the, the new Jerusalem. And it's not that you're earning it. So you see what's so important. It's not that they earn it. It's because you all, you have this. Because you're born again. Because you're in the kingdom. You're invited in. And go, we go, move on. And it says, but outside are these dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And whoever loves and practices a lie. Disobedient, deceptive, dishonest, perverse, violent, idolatrous, sorcerers it refers to. See, Jesus spoke early on in his ministry, and is, is recorded in the Gospels, about people that say they're one thing, but their life says something different. How they say, oh, I'm Christian. You know that America, I think, is like, according to some polls, is like 
over 60 some percent, some as high as 80% Christian. And you can tell that by the way Hollywood produces things that people want. You know, Hollywood can be blamed for everything if you want to, but it's, it's, it's a business deal. And it'll only produce what's profitable. So it's profitable because people are purchasing it. There's an interest in it. They're, they're entertained by it, correct? And so how can we then come back to that assumption that 80-some percent are born again if we go, the values don't indicate it, the lifestyles don't indicate it, but on some form somebody's saying it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm Christian. See, some claim conversion, they talk about being Christian, but their lifestyle says what they really believe. Church attendance has nothing to do with it. Church attendance, to a large degree, is a means by which you worship. It's an act or a, a choice which will you engage and you reflect, if you would, this gratitude and thanksgiving of the life you've been given. And so, we want to be very aware. Um, if you find yourself kind of in the middle, like, eh, you know, I'm just, you know I'll get to church later, I'll do this, maybe you're listening online, and, you know, he's like, eh. Be careful. Be careful. Jesus said, many will come to him in that day, speaking of a time to come yet. They'll come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, look what I've done in your name. I helped with this, and I did that, and I did all these things. You sell your case. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I do not even know you. I mean, that, that should be like soul-shaking stuff. To work. Man, I, I just got to be careful. I don't want to be in that place. We're told in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 10, be careful where you stand lest you fall. We're told that is in reference to what took place in the Old Testament. So that we could learn, it would be instruction, admonition for us not to repeat dumb. Not to repeat disobedience because it has a price. And so I just would encourage you, just be careful, be cautious, and know this. The enemy of your soul, one who at this point we're reading about in Revelation 22, at the end when the new heaven and the new earth, he's, he's in the, the abyssal, he's, he's eternally bound. Where you and I live, he's not. He has a certain degree of range than rain. The enemy will take the word of God and use it to keep you from obeying God. Do you realize that? He actually will use the very word of God and, and he can even manipulate it in such a manner that you could say, well, I, this verse tells me it's okay to live this way. This verse says it's okay to speak this way, to think this way, to do these things. Know that that's a strategy, a scheme, a tactic, a, a while of the enemy. Why can we be so confident about that? Because it's what he did in Genesis with Adam and Eve, and it's what he did with Jesus. Has God not said, and he, he tweaked and torqued and tried to even deceive Jesus using the very word of God. So realize that that can come into play in your life. Let's just be cautious. And I'm not saying, hey, you may not be saved, all this. You know whether you're saved or not. And if you're not, then you know what I'm talking about. You, you, we need to deal with that. You need to make sure that this is resolved and, and realized. Let's move on to this next portion where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these, to, these things in the church. To the churches, to us, this is what he's saying. I want you to know about these things. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. If you look back with me into Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to see 
what, it's, what we're told as we started into this book, this book is not about exclusively, primarily the end time scenario and the, the, the characters that are involved, the Antichrist per se, or himself. What this book is about is Jesus Christ. The revelation, the revealing, it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things much, which must shortly take place. That when these things start, when the rapture of the church takes place, then these things will start going like crazy. They'll, they'll literally go so fast, be quick. And so he's saying, I want you to know this before they come into play, before this takes place. Notice also what he says about himself. We see in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We see in verse 11, he's telling us who is saying these things to us so we can receive them. Seriously. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he goes on to say, what you see, write in a book and send it to the churches. But down in seven, verse 17 of chapter 1. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Back to verse 16 of chapter 22. I am the root and the offspring of David. He's saying, I am the creator and the, and the descendant. Because it fulfilled the prophecy. Remember, it was actually one of those passages that, that Jesus used to bring truth and a stumbling block, so to speak, to the Pharisees and the scribes and those who were trying to trip him up. Remember? He says, okay, well, answer me this. If David is who you say he is, Lord, then how come is it that the Lord says, that David says to Jesus, Lord, capital Lord. See, so how, how can David be who you say, but then he also is talking this way, and they're like, oh, we won't answer you that. <laughs> we can't tell you, because they couldn't, you know, sort it out, because this is saying he's the, Jesus said this is going to be the lineage. God's declared the lineage. He's the root. He is this one who, you know, we know about the lineage of David, the kingly line. But he also says, I'm also the offspring of David. And you're like, what? It's the beginning and the end, said so many different ways. The bright and morning star. You have to get up earlier to notice, but we have kind of, you know, history and magnification and study and analysis. We, we have this place, or this, this planet called Venus that's visible currently. It's a bright star. It's off to the east, southeast a little bit. Check with Greg, he knows all this stuff. But anyway, it's, it's that first thing, in the first light in the morning. That's what he's saying. I'm that bright and morning star, the light for the new day. And that's what he's conveying to you and me. Because that's to the churches. This is not poetic and philosophical. This is said to you and me. This I am the beginning and the end. And then the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hear, who says, come and let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take freely. This, this water of life is offered to us. The church is the bride. We've studied that previously. When we read about come, he's in this invitation. It, it does, it's not just the walking through the door. It speaks of to be established, uh, to become known, to go, to follow one. Thirst speaks of this deep desire, not just uh, a longing for, you know, like you may long for a soda or whatever. You may get done mowing the lawn and like, ah, I'd like to have a, you know, a nice tea. Well, that's true, but you probably know 
parched or really thirsty, really, really thirsty. And it's different. And he's saying, that's come to me. If you would, glance with me over in Matthew chapter 11. A classic uh, invitation by Jesus along these lines. Uh, He's speaking to his disciples. And he says, come to me. And this word used there in the Greek is a little different. It's the same core meaning, but it's a little different because it speaks of urgency and importance. It, It reveals some reason, some humility. It talks about rest. It says in verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see what his invitation is. Confirming once again that God does know what's best for us and desires that best for us. Inviting us to come to him. Now, as we read here what, we, what was recorded in Matthew's gospel and, and we start recognizing, man, there's, there's so much that we're lacking in life. You never have enough, right? I mean, there's always going to be something else. There's always going to be some material thing. There's always going to be some relational thing. There's always going to be some creature comfort thing that we're considering or maybe just before us. But those things don't relieve the burden of the soul. They don't free this constraint of the heart. Because really what's crying out in our lives is a closer walk with Jesus. To know him deeper in a better, in a more true way. So this speaks of just that invitation. And if you're carrying back with me now to verse 17 of Revelation 22. Where he says, you know, let him who thirsts come. Let him take of the water of life freely. Whoever desires, let him take of this water freely. You've been saddened at times, I'm sure. You've seen it in people throughout your life, in your circle of influence. Not everyone who gets thirsty desires what God offers. Not everyone who's thirsty desires what God offers. It's one of the heartbreaks, seriously, of life. When someone you love, someone you, you just see all these qualities, they're just close to you, or you see their struggles, and you want to share with them, and you do perhaps verbalize, and by your lifestyle, you communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they will consider anything other than that one thing. That is the one thing they won't talk to you about. They don't want you, I don't want to talk about religion, or they bring up these things, or they say things in such a way, I, I don't want that. They're open to almost any other suggestion in contemplation, and philosophical foolishness, or whatever. They're not interested. And here's kind of what is sad, is that some in our world, around us even, willingly drink from the pond of misery and death, and refuse to come to the fountain of living water. And it breaks your heart. Because you know the forgiveness, you know the love, you know what it's like, to, as the picture paints, it's like, to, to taste and see that he is good and to be refreshed by the knowledge of his presence, and yet they don't want that. And, and so you see really another distinction. There's those who just don't want God. And, and it's confusing, it's heartbreaking, it's hard to figure out. You know, at some point you should be done drinking out of that pond of misery and consider something that's going to do, bring vitality, to bring new life, but sadly many don't. Verse 18 and 19, we've already read it. We don't really need to, I'm not going to dig into it in any more detail. Uh, I'm just going to say this very simply. Don't mess with the word of God. 
Okay, don't, don't remove parts that are uncomfortable, whether it's, you know, not like you're taking out your Sharpie or whatever. Don't add things that are not true. Some who claim a latter-day revelation and have made addition to this book, the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, they justify their actions by saying, we didn't, we didn't change this book of prophecy. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you really think God's saying, don't change Revelation. Add to or modify anything else, but this, this one book don't touch. We know that's not how he is. Don't mess with any of it. What I mean by mess with is don't, don't interpret, don't take it to be your way of doing what you want. And you say, well, the word of God says, or God said, the Lord spoke to me. Because that happens many times. It's like, man, don't add. Because I'm just telling you, if you want to justify that kind of stuff, memorize verses 18 and 19. I think it'll modify your behavior just a little bit. I'm going out on a limb on that one. Let's wrap it up here as we move to verse 20. He who testifies to these things, which we know is Jesus, because it says, says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen, which we know from previous studies means to um, it's to say, so be it, but it's to personalize. It's like, yes, I am, I, yes, that's it. I want that lifestyle. I want that close relationship, yes. But notice he says, surely I am coming quickly. We looked in this study, and we've seen how Jesus invites us to come to him. We were invited to come to him for salvation, and he will come back to earth quickly Twice. The first time, in the air, he'll come back for those who received salvation. The second time to the earth to judge those who rejected his salvation. When he says he's coming quickly, that's really what it's going to start. When he, when he comes, he's going to take true believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and, and their lifestyle confirms it, he's going to rapture them up. And then he'll return to judge the earth in the end. The judgment process will be taking place while he's in heaven as well. That's what we have in the, in the bowl judgment, trumpet judgment, seal judgments that we've already read about. So with that, I'd like to have the, the worship team come back up. And each Sunday, I like to close our study with a, a prayer and praying through Scripture, a specific verse, usually, most often, or a passage of verses. Today, I, I want to close with verse 21. I want to pray that through for each one of us. That you know, the grace of God is unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness. It's his love expressed. And we don't even know to the degree it is. We're just unfolding it as we go. So if you would stand with me. Then we were, we're going to pray. And then we'll uh, join together in worship by way of music. Let's pray right now. God, thank you so much for your grace that you offered to us life. We didn't deserve it. We, we didn't earn it. Even as we sang earlier, a, a reckless, meaning leaving everything else into man's opinion, that would be reckless. To put all that you have at risk just to save one. But that's an expression of your love, Lord. That you value Every one of us, individually, you value us so highly that you would give your life that we may live. Thank you, God. 
If you're hearing this message, you're working these things through, and you don't have the confidence of salvation, if you don't know with absolute certainty His forgiveness, then I would just say just start right now. Don't ponder and wonder. Just make this the new day. Let the bright and morning star shine into your heart. It begins quite simply starting as He's laid it out for us. A prayer to this measure and this type. God, I, I don't know all this stuff and I'm not really sure how, what all it means, but I, I will agree that I know I've done wrong. I've lived my life in disobedience to you. I've spent time walking away from you, ignoring you. And for that, I ask your forgiveness. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And in asking that, I, I don't do it just to continue where I was, but that you would give me that forgiveness, this new life, this born-again reality that I would know your presence and your forgiveness. And with that, God, as you would forgive me, I, I would also ask that you would teach me. You would lead me. You would show me what this new life is. Protect me, guard me. Let me go back to the way I used to be. May I experience this love that you offer. May I express this love because it's in me. May I know you in a deeper way. Teach me your ways, O oh God. And God, we all ask that we would know your grace in a greater way. Your grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unmerited favor for this moment, in this season, in this time, in our lives individually. That whatever is overwhelming us, whatever may be upon us, whatever might even distract us or lead us off a different direction, we ask for your favor to bring us back on course if that's the case. We ask for your favor to bring revelation, unveiling, that we would understand your forgiveness and know your truth, that we would be aware of your amazing love, God, in a deeper way. We would have a greater confidence because we know who you are and how you are. Regardless of our circumstances, that we'd experience your eternal love in these days. Thank you, God. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. May you continue to lead us and guide us. Oh, it's in your name we pray, Jesus. So be it. We own it. We embrace it. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let's sing.